Hello and welcome to The Wound Doctors, a podcast series dedicated to the study and improved treatment of wounds. These episodes are brought to you by Convitec, pioneering trusted medical solutions to improve the lives they touch. My name's Rod Murray, but as always, the more important member of this team is my co-host, Dr. Francis Henshaw. Why more important? Well, because if it was up to me to organise the guests, we'd spend all our time talking about golf. But since this is a show about wounds, that really wouldn't work. Dr. Fran, who have you brought along to chat with us today? And assuming we don't get sidetracked by golf, which can happen in the medical profession, what will we be talking about? Well... Today we won't be talking about golf because I don't really know anything about golf. I have played it badly a couple of times, but it's something I You know I'd everything you need to know then. <laughs> you, you've had the whole golf experience, if that's the case. Yeah, yeah. So today we're actually talking about, um, you know, being out of your depth, which is pretty much sums up my playing golf, really. <laughs> but um, we've, we've got a guest uh, who is my old colleague, uh, Ian Reid, who's a podiatrist, and um, we've worked together for a long time. And there's been many occasions where be, beyond the kind of smile and looking like you know what you're doing, we've been way out of our depth. And I think this is a really important thing to discuss simply because, um, you know, when I was teaching undergrad, students always think that there's a rule book for everything and there's a right and a wrong and there's a everything is a well-trodden path. And I can tell you that it's not. So, Ian... How do you know when you're out of your depth? Hello, how are you? Um, I think um, everyone has had that gut feeling of the, oh my God, what am I doing here? What what do I do next? And that's your intuition um, telling you that you're out of your depth. But that that's not the only time that, that you actually um, have met the limit of, of your knowledge and skill. Um, and I think... One of the skills that a clinician needs to develop, and it's very hard to teach, and it's something that I think develops over time, is how to be a reflective clinician and how to think back on the cases, the procedures, um, the diagnoses that you've made and the treatments that you've prescribed and to say, did I do the best thing for that patient? Could I have done something better? could I have asked somebody else their opinion? Um, And I think um, it's kind of easy, particularly when clinicians are newly graduated, to think that a good clinician is someone who, like Fran said, ticked all the boxes. Um, I'm actually of a a point in my career now where I think a good clinician is questioning of themselves and is prepared to think, I wonder whether there's something else I could have done. Um, I, think, I think that's a really good point. So um, one of the things that um, we do at the institution I work at is we have mandatory clinical supervision um, where clinicians have to go and speak to another independent clinician um, and talk about clinical cases and what their feelings were, how they can reflect upon it, um, how... Uh, the other clinician might have addressed that scenario or situation differently um, and have that, t- that time to debrief and to think critically about yourself and the scenarios that have come in um, into your clinic and that you've seen. 
I think that's how you build confidence as well, isn't it? Because sometimes you're forced to a position where you're not in full possession of the facts and you just have to make a decision and do something. And then if you look at it afterwards, even if what you did wasn't quite right and didn't quite have the outcome you wanted, at least you've learned from it and and you know that you will have a, a better way forward in future. Um, I can I can give you a great illustration of being out of your depth. I could probably give you like two days worth, to be honest, because it's probably <laughs> the story. Run us through the highlights, real friend. Just give um, us the, the best of the best. I remember I had this um, lady who came in and she had um, a very unusual thing. It was at the foot clinic and she was taking a drug for a rheumatoid condition. And this was very unusual, but her foot started getting all deformed and they thought it might be a reaction to this drug. So what they did is they put her foot in a plaster cast, her leg in a cast, so that the the foot wouldn't deform itself. So this is a situation, it's called autonomic neuropathy and it makes the bones kind of melt, I suppose, for want of a better word. So they, they shoved her in a cast and that was the week before. Then she came back to see me so that I could see how it was, if it was getting better. I called down the rheumatologist. We looked underneath this cast and the, the foot looked like it was not melting anymore and not getting more deformed. So we thought, right, we're on the right lines. No one's ever really known about this drug reaction. And this lady had come with her friend and her friend had gone off to visit somebody else in the hospital. So I'm sitting there chitty chatting with them. And um, the rheumatologist and I thought, do you know what? The other foot now looks like that's going bad because she's probably been walking heavily on that because the, the bad foot was in a cast. So we're like, oh, what should we do? Uh, I think I might have called you, Ian, because you weren't in that day. And we decided that we needed to put both legs into a cast. So I was like, that's cool. I rang the plaster room. It's about five o'clock and they've all gone home. Well, I haven't put a plaster cast on for five years at this point. And uh, the rheumatologist, I don't think, had ever put a plaster cast (laughs) on in his life. So he made his excuses and exited stage left. So I found in the cupboard some boxes of plaster. And um, when you don't know how to put plaster casts on very well, um, it's also not a good idea to try and do it by yourself in someone who's lost the feeling in their feet, which this lady had, because you need someone to hold the foot in the right position. Da, 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 da. So anyway, I get the box out the cupboard full of plaster and I realise that there's barely enough plaster to make two plaster casts. So I'm like, well, I haven't really got any opportunity to get this wrong. So anyway, the first plaster cast goes on and it looked like, I can honestly say, it just looked like someone had got balls of plaster and like, you know, <laughs> thrown it at someone's leg, even though it had gone on as a bandage. It was the Jackson was, Pollock of casts. It was the Jackson Pollock of casts. And, and, and instead of the foot being at 90 degrees at, to the leg, it was at some jaunty little angle. And I was like, oh, well, you know, we've started, so we'll finish. So I start on the next leg and I get that one on. And the plaster calf should really go up to the knee, but we ran out of plaster like mid-calf. And, you know, again, it looked like an absolute dog's breakfast. And I'm there like, you know, dying of shame, but I've got no more plaster. I've got nobody to help me. So I said to the woman, I said, um, can you go and get your friend? Can you give her a call and get her to bring the car around? And she said, oh, we came on the train. And I was like, oh, that's not real good, is it? Oh, well, I suppose we'll have to put her in a taxi. Where do you live? The central coast, which was about 70 kilometres away. <laughs> and it's peak hour. It's like, you know, six o'clock on a Tuesday. So I'm like, oh, this isn't going to go well, is it? I was like, how do you get here? Hoping that, you know, there was some other miraculous. We came on the train. So, yeah. 
So at this point, I'm like, oh, that's okay. We'll just have to get them a wheelchair. So then I'm like, you know, rushing around the hospital trying to find a wheelchair. But none of the hospital wheelchairs were allowed outside the hospital. I found this out. And um, so I said, no, it's okay. What we'll have to do is we'll just have to admit you and we'll get you put in a hospital bed and then you can get somebody to come and get you tomorrow. We'll, we'll fix it up tomorrow. So I rang the bed manager. No, there's no beds in the hospital. We can't have her. So I've got this woman who's got two wet plaster casts and a 70 kilometre train trip home. I'm, I think if that's not out of your depth, that's just like... <laughs> But, you know, I'm still smiling. I've got the veneer up. And um, so we called the independent living store down the road. They were just about to shut their door. And I literally had to, like, give them a kidney so that they'd give us a wheelchair. So we got her in a wheelchair. Um, She got home somehow. She came back the next week. And these plaster casts, honestly, it just looked like everything that could go wrong with a plaster cast. They were kind of all over the place and really uneven and and she's and I said oh how'd you go and she said oh it was a bit difficult and I said oh it was difficult she said oh going to the toilet and I'm like why it's a plaster cast and she's like because they were because <laughs> they weren't flat on the bottom so my husband had to lift me on and off the toilet but I was quite heavy because I had two plaster casts on so this poor woman had had a week of absolute misery and like she couldn't leave the house because she looked so bloody terrible with these plaster casts. I'm glad she didn't leave the house. I'm, I'm a, you know, it's a wonder I've still got my registration, isn't it? But I mean, I guess the point is we were on the money. The plaster cast is what needed to be done. Yes, I was out of my depth, but I was the only person that could do it. And we stopped her legs from getting more deformed. So she actually got a good outcome. And my reflection would be that in future, I would make more inquiries about the after part rather than make these assumptions that somebody's got a car and a capable helper with them. And and it's very easy to be so hyper-focused on what's in front of you in the room, in the clinic room, and, and not consider the other factors that are going to play into is this a successful strategy or not. Yeah, I think I've established that now. (laughs) But but I remember it used to happen all the time. Like when people have got an ulcer on the bottom of their foot, one of the best treatments we know is to put them in a plaster cast. And um, but not a Fran plaster cast. No, I was going to um, get an expert usually, to put them in a plaster there's cast. There's a lady called yeah. Trish. She makes awesome plaster casts. So you're always um, before four o'clock. That's when you book those patients in. And um, but w- when you had a student in, and you'd say to them, "Oh, Mary's got a ulcer on the bottom of her foot. What would you do?" They'd be like, "Oh, I'd put a plaster cast on because it's the gold standard treatment." And then you'd say, "But she's also got an ulcer on the other foot." And they'd say, oh, well, I'd put a plaster cast on that one as well. And then you'd say, but she's 90 and she's blind and she lives by herself. Would you still use a plaster cast? And a lot of the time they would say, oh, yes, because it's a gold standard treatment. So I think, you know, we know that um, often you have to use other bits other than the rule book. And sometimes when people are a bit out of their depth, they cling so hard to the rules and the rule book when it actually doesn't apply in that situation. So I think it's about having this flexibility. And I think what you're saying, Ian, is it's really important to reflect on what you're doing. And, and, and think about how you, you apply that rule book. Um, because whilst you have that rule book of all the things that you're meant to do, do the thing that is variable is the patient in front of you. Um, and so... Um, the skill in any of these clinical procedures is to match the patient and the condition and the procedure 
um, and at the right time. Um, because um, I can imagine um, a time where um, I had worked so hard to get um, a patient into some medical grade footwear. And this is very early in my career. It was at a, I was working in, in an environment where it really wasn't readily available um, and um, it was extremely expensive. And so this is fancy shoes you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'd worked so hard to get these shoes for her. We'd imported them into the country. Um, we had fi- found a funding stream for them. Um, and I had really, I suppose pinned all my hopes as a clinician on these are going to be the solution. And they arrived and they were terrible. I could see they were terrible. Um, But I didn't tell the patient that I thought they were terrible. I let her wear them and she had bad outcomes as a result of that. Um, And um, I learned from that the ability to recognise and speak up Um, And that's speaking up for safety. If you think something is going to go wrong, no one is going to um, think less of you for standing up and saying, oh, I think this is the wrong decision. They will think less of you if you go ahead with that decision and it has undue consequences. If you're enjoying these episodes and you'd like to be part of a like-minded community, why not join our Facebook group? Simply search The Wound Doctors ANZ on Facebook and click the Join Group button. If you'd like to get in touch for anything else, from questions to ideas for future episodes, please feel free to send an email to thewounddoctors at convertech.com. That's thewounddoctors at convertech.com. We look forward to any and all feedback. Now, back to the show. It's much harder to do than say, isn't it? Be introspective, be genuinely... And not uh, the the trap we fall into as humans, we're either overly critical of ourselves, unrealistically, or we're not critical enough. It's very hard to get that right, isn't it? A realistic judgment of what you did and and how right or wrong it might have been. Much harder to do than it is to say. Yeah. And, and, And like I said earlier, I really do think it is a skill that clinicians develop. Um, And that's why it's so critical, particularly when you're very early in your career, that you do go through formal processes of supervision and mentorship um, and using the people around you who have um, developed these skills over time so that you can learn from their experience. And and not take it personally. Dr. Fran, something I was thinking when you were both talking there, is there such a thing as a textbook case of anything? We throw the term around, oh, it's a textbook case of this. It's a textbook case of that. Is there such a thing as a textbook case in medicine generally or in wounds? I would say in the majority of cases, no. I think that there's so many different variables that, um, you know, guidelines are guidelines. They are a guide. Uh, They're not a hard and fast rule. And I think that people need to remember that when they're making their management plans for their patients, that just because something is considered um, uh, the the best, uh, has the best evidence, it might not be suitable for your particular patient. And um, I remember I was talking to one of my UK counterparts in in Convertech and I was talking about this really um, difficult case and, and I said well we might need to put this dressing on with that dressing and it was actually it was actually a relative of mine and um, 
And I said, ah, oh, at the end of the day, it's often just arts and crafts, isn't it? And she was like horrified. She was like, no, it's not arts and crafts. And I'm like, but sometimes I think it is. Do you know what I'm saying? It's Whoa. like you take a little bit from this experience that you had with this patient and a little bit from that experience. Yeah. And this is on a different location. So you might need a guideline from there. And you, and you make this kind of patchwork quilt. And I think that that is a sign of a very kind of highly skilled clinician that they're able to do this kind of lateral thinking of solving a problem by using previous experience and what they call tacit knowledge so um you know i I will i will still say sometimes it's arts and crafts isn't surgery really plumbing carpentry and a bit of electrical wiring in truth yeah it's a much much higher say that the anesthetist trying to keep you alive while the surgeon's trying (laughs) to kill you but it is the truth isn't it you're dealing with power tools and screws and nuts and bolts back operations and those sort of things with fusing people's spines it's not a whole lot different to working with power tools on a a deck or a building a house obviously the skills are different and the stakes are much higher but in a way, you know, if you're building a block of flats and you get it wrong, then the stakes would be a lot <laughs> higher if it falls true, down and true. kills 100 people, couldn't it? So, true, yeah. yeah, hats off to our tradies. Yeah, big time. See, we've covered golf and tradies now. We're really expanding in this show, aren't we? Yeah, Ian, make some sense out of the nonsense that Fran and I have created there. <laughs> but that skill in terms of doing the surgery is probably only really a component mm. of the treatment. Um and once you get the mechanics of the procedure completed, um, you've got to also ensure that um, can that patient function with what you have done to them? How does their change of function relate to their environment, um, how they wish to live their lives, and things that they want to be doing going forward? Um, and so if you were only worried about the textbook case, it would be they had this diagnosis, I did this procedure. Um, The textbook case doesn't uh, recognise that that patient has to then function in the world. Um, And once they leave your office, um, how will what you have done for them, with them and to them actually work for them in the real world? And I think another thing that's um, quite interesting is that some people become very fixated by one part of the patient's journey. So like I work for a wound care company. Some people just have every hope pinned on the dressing. It's like, um, you know, oh, if I can get the dressing right. Oh, I'm not able to access this dressing. And it's like a dressing is part of the puzzle. And, you know, if you haven't, if it's a wound that someone's walking on for example um, if you don't stop them walking on it with some contraption like a special boot or a plaster cast the best dressing in the world probably won't help it to heal but then on the opposite side you get people like surgeons who um, have hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment and you know they charge an awful lot for their operations but they don't give much thought to what they put onto the wound afterwards and for example they could spend $15 on a dressing that a a patient could wear in the shower and could leave on for a week and has four times less chance of giving them an infection or they can put a piece of gauze and some tape on it and you know I think that in those situations the the 
the surgeons so fixated on the surgery that they don't look at the dressing. And I think a lot of wound carers are so fixated on the dressing that they don't look at the rest of the patient journey. So I think it is about looking across everything as a plan for your patient. And that way, um, you will cover all your bases and get a better outcome. And I suppose what you're saying, Fran, is also um, understanding the limits of what your responsibility is in that patient Mm. care and understanding that there are other people around you who have knowledge and skill in those adjoining areas and that you need to be working together to to match up the uh, the puzzle yeah I mean I think one of the things I bang on about a lot is personalized care so that's you know, something that's really tailored for the the patient. And the other thing I bang on about a lot is integrated care, which is where we use all these different team members. So, to you know, it takes a village to heal a diabetic foot ulcer, doesn't it? Because you need probably the podiatrist who works in the foot clinic, but then you might need to call the vascular people in or the infectious diseases people. They might need some radiology. They might need an orthotics person. They might need the district nurse and the GP would have to be involved. There's so many players in this um, that we need to remember that it, there's no glory in doing it by yourself the, the glory is getting the job done by pulling the team together and we're very lucky in these um, big tertiary hospitals that we have these very um, broad skill sets but obviously there's a lot of people who are in r- rural and remote areas and they you know they do really have to um go it alone sometimes so it's important that i think we try and instigate things like telehealth to give these people a hand as well and the critical thing that we see with telehealth is, yes, you can have that um, consultation type process with a patient involved, but you can also use telehealth to reflect upon your own practice and and have that remote supervision as well. I was about to ask that. And do those facilities exist and, and, and are we doing well with expanding those? Because it seems like the greatest use of the internet or one of the greatest uses of this information superhighway is exactly this, the worlds of medicine in areas where you don't have access to the big machines that go bing. Mm. It's, it's been an interesting two years for telehealth, I think, yeah. in, in most countries, but particularly in Australia, um, where um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, there has been a reliance on online um, uh, resources, um, and that includes conferences, it includes um, resources such as this podcast, um, and also being able to connect remotely with your um, colleagues to obtain that support. And I think it's probably something that we are going to see um, retained and um, even after the pandemic. Yeah, it's really accelerated a lot of things in the technology world, hasn't it, the pandemic and in this digital space in particular. Mm. If you can't have face-to-face, you've got to make the very best of what we've got and the technology itself has come a long way in those two years as well. So what we're doing now wouldn't have been possible as simply two years ago. Mm. This is a direct result, the technology we're using here of of what's happened. Dr. Fran, I think that's probably it for Dr. And we need to go and debrief and have some introspection about our performance today, I think, and how we've gone. Yeah, Dr. Did I, I miss think anything? I need to go and reflect on yeah. whether it was wise to tell everyone how rubbish I am at putting plaster casts on when I, you know, have all these students that I've taught for seven years who probably thought I was a bee's knees at things like that. But for hey-ho. A, for a small but growing fee, Fran, I have access to the editing technology, so we can talk <laughs> and negotiate about that as we go. Dr. It's been fabulous to catch up with you today. Really appreciate you taking the time. And some really good stuff to chew on in that episode, I think. Things to really give some thought to. But thanks for taking the time today. Thank you. Thanks. 
And Dr. Fran, always fabulous to talk to you as always. And we'll talk again very soon, I'm sure. But thanks for your time today. Thanks, Rod. 